the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guests, we do want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there, or if not, leave us a nice review on iTunes. We do have one in particular that I'd like to get moved down the list, so please consider that <laughs> for us. Today, Taylor and I are very proud to bring you this week's guest, Renata Seletzel. She is senior researcher at the Institute of Criminology in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ljubljana and holds a professorship at Birkbeck College, University of London. Her books include The Spoils of Freedom, Psychoanalysis and Feminism After the Fall of Socialism, on Anxiety, Choice, and her latest book, A Passion for Ignorance, What We Choose Not to Know and Why. But Renata, thank you so much for joining us on this week's edition of the show. We're very excited to have you and dive into your work. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So we'd like to begin by asking our guests, you know, just it's a good question to sort of get things moving and get the thought process sort of going. We kind of pose it as what would your philosophical origin story be if you have one? So maybe there's a, an anecdote or, you know, a moment in your life or maybe just a thinker or book or, or some person in your life that influenced you to get into philosophy. So if you have something like that, we'd love to hear about it. I was interested in very early on in, in high school in philosophy, psychology, and I also very much enjoyed architecture. Ooh. So it was a big choice between these three <laughs> subjects. Architecture sort of uh, fell down the list because uh, I didn't see many women architects. Uh, uh. And I was feeling that maybe if I become an architect, probably I will design garages and male architects will design houses. But of course, there were not many philosophers, women philosophers also. However, philosophy won at the end because I saw a lot of people having a fantasy that they will do some kind of, let's say, boring job for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And then when they retire, they will read all the books they want to read. Mm -hmm. And I so that they never realized this dream. So I thought I will first read all the books I'm interested in, many <laughs> philosophical books, you know, so I will hire first and then whatever happens, happens. I will do whatever job will be necessary to survive. That's a very practical... Uh, I love it. That was, a, that was a risk worth taking. Of it, course, yeah. it, it was a very non-productive choice. Uh, so I was pleased that my parents were supportive. Although, you know, <laughs> they knew that, you know, it might not lead to any kind of career which would, you know, provide um, for good life. And you've proven that wrong, though, right? Yes, I mean, exactly. You, you, I, I have proven them. Yeah, I have proven them. And they uh, were always saying to all the other parents, allow the child to study whatever, even it's philosophy like my, my daughter did. No, that, that's incredible. And I, I brought this up to you before the show that one of the anecdotes you have in the book is in relation to the fact that there's a Wikipedia, Wikipedia page 
for everything, you know, we can Google information is supposedly at our fingertips at any moment where we're, we're not supposed to be ignorant of, of any phenomenon in the world that's up to us, so to speak. And, and yet you, you kind of juxtapose that sort of instantaneous knowledge gratification versus your, and I assume you're not the only one, I assume this is a very common theme, your dive into the critique of pure reason and how you, you know, at first were rebuffed, but kind of sat with it and sat with that not knowing and use that kind of to drive you to, uh, to learn more and to grapple with not knowing. And something about this being able to sit with not knowing, not it, not it be an instantaneous sort of epiphany is something that perhaps is going to be more and more lost in this sort of explosion of information. Yes, and here I must remember again my, my parents when I made my choice to study philosophy. They said, you know, you really should think long and hard because we are not going to pay, you know, the next year for some other study. So, right. you know, if you choose philosophy, you need to finish the year. And that's when I sort of realized this enormous responsibility to go through, you know, really difficult books. So one of my exams was Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. And to, to get that book in your hands when you are 18 years old, it's very anxiety provoking, and especially before internet. So you read uh, 50 pages, you don't understand anything, you don't know exactly what to do. And then, you know, you, of course, you get some book about Kant, which explains a little bit, you know, what right. the book is really about. But nonetheless, then you have to dive into this very long, complicated book, you know, and read it a couple of times and then, you know, pass the exam. And I think that today, with all the distractions, we don't deal with this necessary anxiety, um, right. necessary in front of the unknown in the way that helps us kind of, let's say, expand our uh, mind, uh, you know, kind of getting our, you know, understanding of text to the point that we kind of feel more and more comfortable with them because we can immediately disappear. We can immediately switch when we feel uncomfortable in front of a complicated text. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, what is a real problem today with our concentration and also enduring anxiety because anxiety is also something positive. You know, when we have stage fright, it's positive in a way that we feel a little bit of anxiety, not too much, you know. Yes, but, yes. But and also anxiety in front of what we don't understand, complicated texts, texts that require us to think and, you know, kind of spend some time with it. And I think that we are losing that. And that's something mm -hmm. that we unfortunately now have to fight with all kinds of self-binding mechanisms to, let's say, leave our mobile phone in yes. another room or switch off <laughs> the internet when we are writing. That is exactly right. It'd be easier... <laughs> Instead of reading through, you know, Kant or secondary literature to grasp it or, or any other thinker, I'm thinking for me, it's, it's more like Hegel, but I find <laughs> Kant sometimes to be a little bit easier, you know, depending on the, the case, but it, it'd be easier just to distract oneself on the phone or even, you know, just to try to, you know, again, read a summary or spark notes or a Wikipedia page. And that can only give you the rudiments, but what you're talking about is something more delicate. It is something more akin to, working with and working through our the anxiety and the uncertainty and the non-knowledge and groping about to a certain extent and being <laughs> being okay with that instead yeah. of the fear of not mastering immediately. Yeah. 
So another anecdote, a few years ago, I had a graduate student in philosophy who decided to write his PhD, the first version of PhD by hand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to kind of escape the, the temptations uh, on computer. Mm, yeah. You know, he, disconnected internet in the room where he was writing uh, yeah. PhD and also allowed himself the mobile phone use only in some rooms, not, you know, in, in right. the room writing. Did that pay off? Did that work out? For... Yes, yes, yes. Actually, at the end, he did retype it, you know, and <laughs> yes, yeah. he passed successfully. Good. There you go. That's that's a tip. That's a pro tip that I think I might have to use at certain points, you know, when I can get distracted when trying to read either for the show or when editing translation, something like this. It's much easier just to get distracted from the constant influx, the constant possibility is infinite possibilities just at your fingertips. And I think that that's another sort of consequence of this explosion of information. The unconscious is always groping for something like, yes. right, right. The ego is sending out its little pseudopodia. I've just, that's funny. I hadn't thought about that so much, but it, yeah, it's so true. I was, you know, same thing. I have my laptop reading your book and then I'm, I've got my phone in my lap and I'm looking mm -hmm. at my Twitter account. Uh, I'm so many of these characters in your book, Renata. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I think especially, you know, Taylor brought up the, not exactly this, but I think posture syndrome is definitely something that I, or like faking it till you make it. I think in particular, mm -hmm. because we are, you know, Taylor and I are engaging week to week with difficult readings oftentimes. And, you know, thinkers like yourself, obviously that it can be, you know, that's in a little bit of anxiety inducing a little bit of that is fine, but too much, you know, maybe is, is not so good. But yeah, it's kind of it's an interesting something that I can very much identify with, I suppose, in just trying to find the balance between feeling confident enough to <laughs> to engage with people. Obviously, we have no idea who the audience is, you know. I'm all for, you know, a little bit of anxiety. And I think that the imposter syndrome, one should also not perceive it at only negative, you right. know, just to explain to, to the audience that in the 70s, the imposter syndrome was invented when, you know, psychologists observed that a lot of women were feeling that they will be found out when they succeed, that someone mm -hmm. will, you know, discover that they are not as good as they look, not as smart, not as, you know, sort of accomplished. And they had this anxiety, which in some way shows us that, you know, what in Lacanian psychoanalysis we call the big other, but, uh, mm -hmm. the big other still exists, which means that we are still worried about how we are appearing in the broader social setting. And mm -hmm. you know, that kind of a feeling, I'm not the one, you know, who appears on the outside, you know, this kind of an anxiety, I think, is very much linked to the fact that we are split subjects and mm -hmm. full of doubt, you know, the one who really, you know, thinks that he is a king or, or you know, a master, <laughs> an incredibly powerful person that person might lack, you know, this essential doubt and, you know, might have a kind of a untriggered psychotic structure. And unfortunately, today's uh, capitalism very much uh, encourages this idea of uh, self-confident leader, you know, and right. uh, mm -hmm. someone who does not have doubt. And unfortunately, quite a lot of politicians who are, let's say, succeeding in drawing big crowd around them, the kind of, let's say, contemporary populist politicians, they quite often also appear as people without anxiety and without doubt. And of course, when we are full of anxiety, we are often searching for someone with whom to identify. 
mm-hmm. something to prop ourselves on. Mm-hmm. Yes, and unfortunately, <laughs> you know, we are allowing, you know, these people who are lacking the feeling of doubt, the feeling of guilt, you know, have this kind of a narcissistic structure to become, you know, powerful leaders in, mm-hmm. in industry and in politics. I think this is great. I, I did appreciate that chapter because I didn't I didn't know that the origin of that term imposter syndrome was first kind of crafted around, you know, successful women. So I didn't know that that had, had feminist origins. And so understanding that actually gave a lot more um, context. But also in what you just said, it makes kind of sense in terms of the master or the subject supposed to know. There's this interesting like in the diagrams about what the four diagrams, you can think of the master's discourse. The master doesn't need to know. He just wants things to work, right? So there is a kind of ignorance on the master side. It's the the so-called slave in the field of knowledge who's producing knowledge. And as long as that there's some sort of surplus, the master doesn't, doesn't need that knowledge just, just for that, that surplus to accumulate. So it is kind of interesting, just off the top of my head, seeing ignorance in that sphere and yet at the same time, as you point out, there is this portrayal of mastery within populism. And you give, obviously, the example in, in the States of Donald Trump. There is this sense of a learned ignorance in a different sense that he portrayed as being of being a layman, being every man by uh, sort of a chauvinism of his lack of knowledge instead of you know, his mastery of everything, you know, at least pretending to to just everything is known, but at the same time, not knowing became a almost a boon for him. Exactly. And it happened um, already before Trump that mm-hmm. uh, being ignorant is something that you can be proud of or you mm-hmm. can become a celebrity because of your ignorance. So you are not ashamed anymore, you know. Right for your lack of knowledge or even your lack of interest to. Mm -hmm, to. mm -hmm. I remember years ago in the UK when uh, the the Big Brother uh, TV show became very popular, there was one contestant from the UK who did not know where the city Cambridge is. Wow, okay. In in which country is Cambridge. Okay. And she became even more famous after this. Now, <laughs> why? Because it was so easy for the audience to identify with her. You know, there is right. some kind of, uh, yeah, you are more relaxed about your lacks of knowledge when someone mm-hmm. who is so famous, like Trump, for example, mm-hmm. or you know, a contestant who was a celebrity in Big Brother, you know, openly admits um, that she doesn't know something, you know, so basic, like work. this city is. I think... This started, you know, some time ago to be proud of your ignorance. And of course, now with the social media, we also have a huge difference in regard of, you know, who who is authoritative for something. So an opinion of an influencer, of course, easily has more followers than any scientific knowledge, you know, produced after decades of work. Um, Mm -hmm. And we know now that we don't have any agreements on what is a fact, what is truth, which is why in the paperback edition, which just came out of my book, A Passion for Ignorance, I'm going into this problem, you know, the problem of truth today and in the past. And, you know, I think that, let's say, philosophers like Jan Patochka, who very much influenced Václav Havel, um, mm-hmm. you know, the playwright, former um, late 
president of uh, Czech Republic, you know, mm-hmm. you know, they mistakenly believed that, you know, a social change can happen if people will see the truth, the truth of how the regime functions, for example. So, you know, Václav Havel, in wonderful short story on the, on the story of the greengrocer, he speaks about, you know, a man who every 1st of May is putting a communist flag and, you know, a poster, workers of the world unite themselves. <laughs> um, but he doesn't believe in communism, but he puts this, you know, poster because, you know, the party requires him to do it. And he thinks privately, I don't agree with the party, but doesn't cost me much, you know, to put this slogan <coughs> in the window of my shop. But Havel's idea is that the regime, you know, might change when mm-hmm. people start speaking the truth, when they will openly say, you know, I don't believe in the regime. Now, things are very much changed now because mm-hmm. the regimes today actually play on the idea that people don't believe in anything anymore. Right. You know, yeah. and they don't expect people to believe in them. You know, I think that to understand these ideological changes today is really important, you know, and that's kind of what has been driving me throughout my career. The biggest question in my life has always been how do people identify with the ideology? How does an ideology grasp them, you know, and of course helps a continuation of some regime, you know, in the past, I lived in the socialist regime of former Yugoslavia. You know, the ideology there was very different than the ideology later of kind of, let's say, liberal, neoliberal capitalism, which happened after you know the collapse of mm-hmm. uh, socialism. But nonetheless, you could see some similarities in the ideologies before and and today, in some way, you know, both very much kind of relied also on certain apathy of people, a certain disinterest, you know, a certain kind of retreat into private life, which mm-hmm. is more and more happening today. And that's kind of the work I'm doing now for my next uh, book project. I'm really glad you brought that up because I did glean that you are working on the subject of apathy and one can already see immediately a continuation from this question of ignorance, denial to apathy. They're intimately related in my mind. So it makes very much sense that that would be the next step. Yeah. And it's also a very interesting uh, subject because there have been actually in the United States in the 50s, quite a movement in favor of uh, apathy because there were some ideas that democracy in a way is a system which allows you, let's say, not to vote, to retreat into your private life and so on. So this, the political scientists who were praising apathy, of course, were quickly criticized that in a very uh, divided society, usually it is only the lower class, which is apathetic and the upper classes, you know, or, or those who are, you know, racially in much more advantageous, you know, they are not apathetic at all to keep their power. Right. Right. I think that 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 makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I was just thinking about what was it? It was before the Civil War, I believe, in the 1840s, there was a party in the United States called the Know Nothing Party. So they had very much, uh, very much a populist type of party. They weren't around for very long, but they pushed, you know, all kinds of chauvinistic ideals and populist ideals of the of the sort of the worst sort. But it 
But it just the fact that that's a part of our history, the Know Nothing Party, just really puts a shows that these things, this question of ignorance in politics, this question of apathy is uh, it's been around. You know, it's not it's not anything necessarily new. It's just, you know, transformed a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you. And thanks for the information about this party. <laughs> that's something that that's just just popped into my head thinking about all the all the different ways that ignorance, you know, denial and then apathy, because I think all three of those kind disavowal of disavowal. Disavowal. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there because that, that's what I was thinking about, too, was the fact that, you know, when you I know that you brought up. Gosh, I'm trying to think you. Well, well, I was thinking of the some of the main principles of, of psychoanalysis, right? In the session, in the session with the analyst and the analyst, one of Freud's for the analyst, one of his principles is the evenly suspended attention, right? Not to focus on any one detail, not to focus on any one statement from the analysis. And so in a certain sense, there is a kind of frame that that may yeah, like yeah. like I know Coop does filmmaking and and he's got that as as part of his background so he understands very specifically that you can't focus on everything so there has to be kind of things outside the frame that right. one maybe ignores or doesn't pay as much attention to but there's also in in the demand to say anything that comes to mind there's also this demand to ignore the whether it be the super ego or the inhibitive compulsion to to stop from saying something so there's a kind of on that end, a type of ignorance. And then um, what was the third thing I had about, there was some other principle that I wanted to bring up, but those two at least are very much, oh, and, and in just the negation essay, the the fact of the symbol of negation, right, of denial is endows thinking with, the, with a measure of freedom from the consequences of repression and the compulsion of the pleasure principle. So there's like, ignorance is very, in a certain clinical sense, important to to Freudian technique, if that makes any sense. Yes, absolutely. And um, great that you mentioned uh, Freud's short but brilliant uh, essay on, on negation, because he, in this essay, links uh, negation to a kind of an idea of freedom, you know. So he gives these examples that when in the discourse, a patient negates something, saying like, uh, the person in my dream is not my mother. You know, that's like his famous example, you know, saying that she's not the mother. No one was saying, you know, that uh, the person <laughs> is his mother. So he is in a way saying it, like for the first time, the patient, by mm -hmm. negating it. However, by doing this, he's opening up his patient, that's Freud's point, uh, a possibility to move further, you know, mm -hmm. so he's uttering something that has not maybe in the in the discourse been uttered uh, before and you know maybe the next step of free associations will um, reveal something more about uh, his relationship to the mother or his emotions in regards to his mother. I think that it is very important to understand sort of like these elements negation, denial, ignorance in analytic setting in a variety of ways because ignorance is also you know, kind of on the side of the psychoanalyst who mm -hmm. is in some way a person who is in the position that, that is supposed to know, the subject supposed to know, we call mm -hmm. it in psychoanalysis. However, you know, he or she has to sort of remain in the position of, in a way, not knowing, um, mm -hmm. not giving theories about, you know, what is happening in the patient's life and, you know, being the one who bounces kind of questions back. 
and allows the patient, you know, to come to the knowledge which has maybe been, you know, repressed, pushed aside, too traumatic to talk about, too traumatic to remember. And that's where, you know, sort of uh, ignorance plays an important part also on the side of the patient. And quite often, as I say in the book, it is things which are really, you know, too painful to be put in the words that Mm -hmm. are something that we ignore. Like I give examples from, you know, medicine when we are facing some terrible, you know, illness. Uh, quite often we do everything kind of, uh, let's say, to push it aside, not universally, but many people, you yes. know, don't want to know. And it is, of course, difficult nowadays whether you want to know or not. Actually, myself, I was dealing practically with with the question to know or not to know about sort of my genetic. Right. I was chosen in, in Slovenia to be um, one of the people who were asked to donate um, their blood so so that they will analyze it for the kind of a bank, genomic bank, which we are establishing. When I was dealing with this question, do I want to know or not? I was sort of naively thinking that if they do, you know, the analysis of my genome, that they will inform me. There are maybe potentially some illnesses lurking right in me and so i had to kind of deal personally whether i want to know or not and i've decided if they tell me you know some uncomfortable information i want to know it but whenever i ask my students do they want to know let's say that we would now be able to have genetic text tests which would sort of let's say predict us that um, painful illness like alzheimer await mm-hmm. You know, there are already some tests, but we still don't have anything like universally available. And, you know, of course, illnesses, most of the illnesses are not linked to one gene, but, you know, a kind of interplay with genes and the environment. So it's right. very to make the prediction. But whenever I ask this kind of, a, let's say, potential fantasy type of question at the moment, my students, usually they divide themselves into half and half, half of the group would say, we want to know what Mm -hmm. awaits us. But the other half say, we don't want to know. Especially if an illness like Alzheimer awaits me, I don't want to know. And when I ask them, what's the reason for not knowing? Quite often they say love, but both groups bring love to the forefront. You know, Mm. so which doesn't want to know, would say, oh, we will be afraid to fall in love, you know, so we rather enjoy life, you know, have lovers and so on without knowing what awaits us. And the others yeah. say, we want to know because we will love more. Now, <laughs> Ooh, that's still- a good point. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't want to know just, I'm just want to put that out there <laughs> for everyone that I don't want to know because I don't want to have anxiety. I already have enough. I have too much anxiety as it is. So that's why I would rather remain ignorant. So I don't have to sit there and wait. But then again, I guess on the reverse of that is if you don't know, it's the unknown becomes all the more terrifying. So maybe I have it backwards. I'm not sure. A lot of people want to know with the fantasy that they can do something, that they can change something something even if they can't but there's this idea that maybe you know we don't want to give up on the idea that we are subjects that we can sort of change situation that drive to master we we would kick in so you know either way i think i think that's the double buying coop right if you didn't know you know you could be anxiety you could have you could dread the unknown but then if you did know (laughs) then you would have all this you know you'd have a different problem so yeah you would have to confront the real 
head yeah. on and that's terrifying maybe that's yeah. why i don't what i don't want to do i want to live in my little fantasy where i'm yeah, immor- so, where i'm immortal the- and strong and <laughs> handsome and good looking and and smart and all that. <laughs> but in regard to knowing on <laughs> And not knowing, you know, one of the most puzzling things, which, you know, I'm thinking quite still quite a lot, which I tackle in the book at the end of the book is this question of, for example, when when people know that something is false, you know, like fake news or a conspiracy theory, but they are still sharing it, you know. So this is like a kind of quite a challenge, I would say, you know, you know that you are spreading something that you don't believe in yes and nonetheless you're spreading it so at the end of the book i'm mentioning uh, research done by danish american social scientists who interviewed uh, 6000 uh, passionate twitter users you know who <laughs> okay followers a big following group and they are like really uh, passionately spreading, you know, uh, fake news and conspiracy theories. And when they interviewed them, they saw that a lot of these people don't believe in what they are sharing. Here, for me, the really big question was, what's the enjoyment in doing this? You know, when you are not, you know, believing in what you're sharing, that you must gain something. And I think that there are two gains. And one gain is recognition. This feeling that your group is then, you know, retweeting, liking, and so on, and you're gaining, you know, sort of uh, kind of your audience, you're you're Mm -hmm. gaining followers. And that is uh, a satisfaction which people are craving in today's times. They, in the past, craved different type of satisfaction, but it's very similar still, you know, the big other still functioning. Social prestige. Exactly. It's, you know, not so changed um, our relationship to Big Other today. And then the second enjoyment, I think, really jouissance in the Lacanian term is when the other group, let's say people who have opposite beliefs, maybe politically opposite or whatever opposite beliefs, are angry. Mm -hmm, When they respond, when they are outraged, then you get another recognition from Mm -hmm. them. you know this, you know anger and you know counterattacks that you that you gain with spreading something that you don't believe. It's give me more love or more disdain. It's the indifference that's that's yeah. bad. Indifference it's, is I, the opposite of love or something like that. Right? Yeah. The indifference it's, is what they hate. Was what they hate. They crave the love or the disdain. At least if you're hated, you're recognized. I think. Yes. maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that's why I bring together in the book these two terms. You know, ignorance in in the meaning of being ignored and ignorance in regard to knowledge. You know, the relationship. Right. Yeah. Lack of knowledge. Uh, right. That's nice. You had the wonderful Oscar Wilde quote, right? The worst thing uh, being yes, talked right? about is, is not <laughs> being talked about. I really appreciated that. That was great. On Twitter, I spread bad interpretations of Lacan, but not knowing, <laughs> not knowingly though. It's it's unconscious. Well, no, I mean, but a lot of times, <laughs> a kidding. lot of times, a lot of times, your it's what we call shit posting, right? A lot of times, it, it's a humorous take on a serious theoretical matter, which you know, if you think about Lacan seminars, especially, he's he's not afraid to to pun and to make these kind of convoluted jokes out of these theoretical difficulties in a way. So there is a sense in which Lacan too is, you know, we can call it playing, we can call it shit posting, but there is a kernel of seriousness to it. Yes, uh, you are right, but he also, you know, was a performer. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I agree. Liked, I so he, agree. With he this. liked to provoke even with his dress coat and you know fur coats in the winter and right. so on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the fur coats. Yes, there's a great. Is it Dali who he's with? Uh, yeah, Cooper? yeah. There's a picture of him and Dali getting yeah. either getting into a limousine or getting out of one or something like that. <laughs> it's a, oh, it's yeah. great. Funny that you mentioned that because I was thinking about, you know, we just covered Seminar 20 a few weeks ago. And I mean, I love the seminar. I thought it was a wonderful read, but I could see Lacan. He's almost like a a um like a Vegas performer at this point, you know, like the rat pack or like, you know what I mean? Like a like a Dean Martin almost. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I know, yeah. There is um a lovely film, Adieu Lacan, which which was also, you know, kind of done a few years ago. Right. Um, which um, the, the American director Richard Leeds did like a low budget film. Yeah, where it was a, a good presentation of him and in, in his eccentricities also of Lacan. His, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I And I do think that it's good here since we're talking about Lacan. I was curious, and this is perhaps for our benefit a little bit, but for the audience, you draw the title of your book, A Passion for Ignorance, from one of his seminars, uh, which I hadn't, I hadn't come across, but I think it's it is interesting because you go into sort of this idea that Lacan is gleaning from Buddhism, this kind of feeling. Do you want to maybe discuss that a little bit, the background, the context for the listener? Yes, exactly. So, yes, I was curious, uh, how did Lacan, you know, come to this term passion for ignorance? Because, you know, he mentions that people don't have a passion for knowledge, but rather a passion for ignorance. And then he describes it, you know, that, you know, people come to psychoanalysis with the idea that they want to know what is causing their suffering, but then very quickly they close their eyes. They don't want to go near, you know, their traumatic uh, pasts or something, you know, that is actually, you know, very much linked to their pain. And I started looking into the history when Lacan started first using the term and actually how did he come to this term? And then I realized that he was attending in the 50s at the Sorbonne lectures on Buddhism. And mm-hmm. that that time, you know, uh, there was a very famous Indian scholar of Buddhism, Valpula Rahula, who was uh, also lecturing at uh, Sorbonne and, you know, they were sort of studying his work. And I realized that actually Lacan picked it from Buddhism and kind of reinterpreted this term in his own uh, work. So I think he kind of borrowed a passion for ignorance from Buddhism without really sort of going kind of further into Buddhist discussions about uh, ignorance. I think he, he did, you know, this with some other philosophers too, you know, he got influenced with something and then he kind of, I would say, reused some terms. And I think that ignorance is is one of these terms kind of reused by him, you know, later on. And I think in a very good way, because I think that he tackles sort of the deadlock of psychoanalysis, you know, where also in practice, psychoanalysis, some sort of kind of gets stuck. And it's nice to maybe give an example to our mm-hmm. listeners, you know, mm-hmm. and it will be an example, not from Lacan, but from the work of Lacanian psychoanalyst Gerard Pommier in one of the books, I think it's something on the on the erotics and something, I forgot the title, which was published maybe 20 years ago, also mm-hmm. in English. 
translation, he gives an example of a patient who comes to see him with the strange problem. He was sort of kind of happily married, you know, life was not, you know, fantastically happy, but, you know, he was married for 20 years, but kind of satisfied. And then suddenly this patient got the idea he wants to divorce Mm. and he could not inform his wife that he wants to divorce. So in Mm. his head, he decided that he wants a divorce. Didn't really kind of know why, but he felt that he needs to do this. And the guy had a very strange kind of ritual with his mother. So although he was married for <laughs> 20 years, every weekend he was taking his dirty laundry to his mother <laughs> to wash it. <laughs> and she prepared, you know, the washed laundry, everything. <laughs> properly ironed, you know, so she was doing all this stuff for him every weekend. And, you know, finally, when he was in analysis discussing why he cannot inform his wife that he will divorce her, he said to the analyst, this weekend, I will tell my mother that I'm going to get divorced. And then when he heard himself saying this, he realized that he is going to divorce his mother. And not mm. his wife, mm. you know, that he wants to change something in this, you know, strange bond, emotional <laughs> bond, <laughs> and also that's a dirty laundry type of bond <laughs> that he had with his mother. Mm. You know, so we see that psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic setting opened up for this man a possibility to hear himself differently. Right. I'm going to divorce, I'm going to get a divorce, was suddenly put in a different context. You know, so his kind of, let's say, knowledge in regards to the kind of the traumatic relationship he was working uh, on with his mother suddenly came to the forefront. And, you know, of course, there was no need to divorce his wife, which is why he couldn't utter these words to her. I think that's fascinating. It does point to that again, that that role that the analyst would play in, in the analytic discourse is, you know, kind of whatever you want to call it, objective neutrality or a blank mirror instead of sort of, and, and I think this is why Freud didn't want to face his patients, right, to influence them. But if there is this blank mirror and not sort of, and we're not mimicking the other that we and not putting on or imposing or posing as, you know, something that we think they want, but we have this blank reflection coming back, then we're able to see ourselves perhaps in a different light in that setting. Exactly. And, I, and you know, of course, now, of course, the question is what has changed in psychoanalysis when a lot of analysis is now done online or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, you know Zoom and so on. We just had a conference in, in Vienna a few weekends ago at the Vienna Psychoanalytic Organization. And, you know, they were kind of debating this, whether something has, you know, radically changed. A lot of the old-fashioned psychoanalysts still felt that, you know, having a person physically present and on the couch is really an important element, you know, Mm -hmm. in psychoanalysis, which is why some of the old-fashioned Viennese psychoanalysts, even today, don't want to use the new technologies. But, you know, people are traveling, moving, patients are nowadays living, uh, you know, abroad, working remotely, and so on, which is why quite a lot of psychoanalysts have accepted, you know, the new technology as an adequate way to, to do analysis in today's times. I think I would want to be, I both as an analyst and an analyst, I would want to be in the room on either side of that, I think. 
I really want to be, I think that context is important, you know, something about maybe the ability, the setting for the free association. Like I feel like it's Mm -hmm. almost, well, (laughs) I was going to say it's almost like I started to think about maybe that's too much like the confessional booth type relationship. So maybe that's a bad, (laughs) maybe that's a bad. It kind of is though, right? But I feel like, I don't know, something about the context, I think opens up the subject. If you're within your bedroom talking to your analyst, I don't know. I think that's a different, (laughs) that is a different animal. A different (laughs) transference, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) And unmediated, yeah, mediated versus unmediated transference. Uh, How does that even work? Because you're not able to pick up on like the, I guess the nonverbal cues as much, even like noises or bodily, you know, movements as intricately, so. That's true. But at the same time, you know, with the pandemic and lockdown. Right. Yeah. I mean, pragmatically, it makes a lot of sense, too. I just feel like, yeah, there's something could be lost there. I agree. But I think that um, we need to be opened up about the possibilities, the new technologies. And, you know, especially I think after COVID-19, the possibility that there might be new events like this. It's good if people have the possibility to talk to someone, even if it is only with the help of the screen. And by the way, you know, we are also now discussing. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Across the ocean. (laughs) That's true. I mean, you're right. There is a sense in which the technologies for whatever drawbacks they may have from the original conception of of the psychoanalytic setting, it's a tool in the toolbox that can and should be used when possible and sometimes when necessary. And of course, as you mentioned, this type of format makes what we do possible. And so, you know, I won't be, I'm going to be the neutral, take the neutral side that I can see both, both senses. And I do think it's interesting just on this topic, you know, I was kind of thinking more about analysis and ignorance. And one of the things that we've been talking about in the in the past few intercha- interchanges is this idea that resistance to not only, you know, of the ego, let's say, or the conscious to working through repression, but even to a psychoanalysis, there's something about resistance that on the one hand is an obstacle to working through and the cure, but is also perhaps can be a lever and a means and a tool with which to work with because the resistances to the cure, to the working through, to the to the session itself seems to be the point upon which to, I don't know, put pressure or to investigate further. I guess my question is, do you see how that then, you know, resistance to not knowing, if you will, is perhaps one of the key features of any analytic treatment? The resistance to knowing, I think probably, you know. Mm-hmm. Resistance to come too close to, you know, what was what is maybe the core of your symptom. And I I think that very, you know, skilled psychoanalysts are are able to easily deal with this resistance. You know, sometimes, of course, nowadays, I would say because of the possibility to move psychoanalysis online, you know, the resistance um, might be, you know, linked to the fact that, you know, people, even when they have the possibility to work online, find ever new obstacles of, you know, why they cannot. (laughs) Sometimes even with the idea that the technology is not working or whatever. (laughs) I'm seeing this also with my students sometimes. (laughs) when I ask them to 
kind of, let's say, show their face. If I'm teaching online, you know, half of the computers are not working or the cameras are not working. Interesting. Yeah. So I feel it's like we use, you know, whatever tools we have for our resistance in psychoanalysis, (laughs) you know, otherwise. That makes a lot of sense. What I was thinking about earlier was with mastery and with the analyst as the subject supposed to know, you know, the you're coming to the analyst thinking he's going to know the answers, right? And Lacan kind of forefronting this as perhaps a bad model, because I think that, and Freud had this idea too, I think that if it were as easy as sort of just telling the patient back to them, here's what's wrong with you, here's your symptom, here's what you're repressing, it's your mother, it's your father, et cetera. If it were just enough to give the knowledge you know, kind That's of like a good point, yeah. Kind of like, kind of like Freud says, if it's when the analyst says it's not my mother, you know, even if repression has lifted a little bit because of the symbol of negation. That's not yet working through the issue, so it's not enough to. This is, I think, why he got rid of. He moved away from suggestion and hypnosis. You know, because it's it's not enough. There has to be more done to um, associatively link up these repressions and. So I guess that's the interesting thing for me yeah. is that is that breaking through ignorance is just one of the first steps, right? Okay. To it's to not enough to just getting... we know and we understand that capitalism is bad, but we can't work through it yet. It's we know very well, and yet there's still more work to be done than exactly. just than just knowing, which is why I think someone like Socrates, who sometimes it feels like he's saying people don't knowingly do the wrong thing, and yet with psychoanalysis, we can see that that's, yeah. that's not such an easy ethical statement to make. So this, right. this question of ignorance becomes, you know, involved in, in a more elaborate process, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. In Lacanian analysis, for example, of obsessional neurosis, you see, you know, kind of a knowledge presented often in the discourse and obsessional will, for example, explain, you know, everything in the words to the analyst, you know, what he thinks or she thinks is wrong in, in his or her life, you know, maybe in detail describe, you know, the conflict with, with some, you know, parental figure and so on. But, you know, kind of explaining everything, putting everything in words and, you know, sort of kind of dealing with it are two separate things because the person will not link his or her affects to right. the discourse that he or she is presenting, you know, so it will be as if he or she is speaking about someone else, as if, right. you know, the story that he is giving, an explanation which might be totally plausible, does not concern the patient, him or herself. And that's where, you know, the Lacan says that in obsessional neurosis, sometimes you need to even, you know, introduce a little bit of kind of a shaking up, like sometimes even a little bit of anxiety or something, right. you know, kind of perturb that in the detachment, you know, uh, that the person is able, this kind of a charade, you know, the the person is presenting, you know, maybe a perfect theory or story and does not kind of deal with the affect emotions that are really operating behind, you know, so that's kind of pushed aside, which is very different than with the hysteric, you know, who will be quite often, you know, sort of constantly searching for the master, you know, hoping to get an answer from mm-hmm. the analyst, you know, or provoking, you know, the analyst making maybe some drama. And, you know, it's, it is very important that the psychoanalyst kind of differently reacts in both cases. 
this is wonderful that you brought up the difference between the obsessional and the sort of detachment from affect versus the hysteric who's constantly pushing for, you know, for the production of knowledge. It's as though the hysteric, you know, wants this production, you know, which is why what Lacan later links it to, to sort of the movement of, of science, right? It's constantly wanting to know and wanting to produce some sort of knowledge versus the obsessional who perhaps wants to be seen as the source of knowledge. Is that right? Is there something about the obsessional wanting to to be seen as producing all these links, but yet not affectively connecting them? Yes, in, in some way. And also, let's say quite often, an obsessional might be a workaholic uh, mm-hmm. who kind of appears as if, you know, he's just following some master who is constantly demanding from him to work more and more. But actually, it is the obsessional himself mm-hmm. who is master, you know, who is imposing constantly, let's say, new tasks so that, you know, he doesn't come close to something that is too much for him. Maybe, you know, the woman he really wants to come close to, but, you know, he's afraid that coming too close to the object of his desire will Mm -hmm. annihilate, you know, will be the end of his subjectivity, which is why he needs to have ever new obstacles, like too much work or whatever. There is, again, a very nice um, example of it from... Actually, it's from the 80s. There was an Argentinian psychoanalyst who wrote Indart, was his name, in one of the French Ornicard, the Lacanian journals, a little vignette about his patient who was very much in love with one woman. And at that time, the phone lines didn't work too well. We didn't have mobile phones yet then, but like right. the normal lines didn't work too well in Argentina. So the person was waiting for the woman he adored to call him. But he was constantly picking up the phone to check if the phone line is working or not. <laughs> he was prevented preventing the woman to call him ah. right <laughs> after waiting like two days and constantly picking up, <laughs> he collapsed and he ended up in psychoanalysis you know oh wow i mean there's a i mean i also think fondly of the the Ratman case where he kind of sets up this whole elaborate puzzle if you will with some forgetting on one side and some you know obviously different forms of repression this whole charade to sort of embroil himself and prevent himself from getting close to the object of desire, as you as you said. That makes very much sense, that obsessionality. I can see it. And that's kind of why you say in the chapter on love, where you kind of point out that there is a sense in which, if you will, the chase is more, is more um, seductive or more intense than actually getting uh, the object of desire, that that's perhaps the last thing they want is actually the object of their desire turning their attention to them. It's more about this obsessional mode. Yeah, when I'm praising ignorance in love, so that mm-hmm. in romantic love, it's important, you know, to keep closing your eyes and not try too much. You had a great footnote where you break down what Lacan's triangle of ignorance, love, and hate, you know, in their relation to the symbolic, real, and imaginary. But it, it does make sense that the way you were working it out, that in love, there may be this move towards the other as as a total object, whereas the pervert has it easy, right? The pervert just wants a part and not the whole. So they don't really need usually to go into analysis. They're, they're quite happy just to have a little piece that facilitates things. But that's not the case for uh, in terms of love, which requires this 
screen of fantasy or this this ability as you as you said to kind of not see certain things or at least to see them in refracted so to speak yeah but which is why you know for for a partner of the pervert it's always complicated let's say if the someone has a perverse sort of let's say attachment to a particular kind of a fetish Mm-hmm. Let's say high heels, and the woman who has high heels, you know, would be, you know, for him, you know, some something very, you know, enjoyable to watch or do something else. But like as soon as she doesn't have high heels, she loses, you know, the aura. And for the partner, for this woman, might might be very traumatic, you know, to understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The importance of the fetishist object, which sort of means that she's kind of a, a secondary to the object, you know. Forvas is not interested in her, per se, which might be very hard to deal with if you are in, in this kind of a relationship. This is making me think there has to be some Lacanian essay on Cinderella and the slipper. There has to be some sort of, you know, writing on the magical fetishistic slipper that turns Cinderella into the princess, but that's just off the top of my head. If it hasn't been written, somebody needs to go go write that. I would doubt it hasn't been written about. Definitely. Um, And of course, there have been interesting studies on the shoes and the fashion and psychoanalysis, quite mm -hmm. a number of texts and books. Coop, I definitely want you to to come in. I'm just going through some of my my questions and and hogging the, the show, but there was one other thing before I, I hand it off. So I'll, I'll let you start thinking, Coop, about which one of your questions you want to ask. There was in, I believe it's in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, you know, after World War One, Freud has this kind of big turn in 1920. I say big turn, it turns towards the later work where he, it's his most speculative work, but at the sort of at the forefront, he's talking about dreams from some of the soldiers that return from the war and their anxiety dreams and how they're sort of reliving this trauma and he's confronted with the idea that perhaps his initial sort of declaration that all dreams are, you know, involve wish fulfillment. He's wondering what is the wish that's being fulfilled in these recurring nightmares. And it's, you know, he supposes that the anxiety induced in the dream is this means of sort of retroactively preparing anxiety as a defense for the traumatic events of war. And I'm wondering then if this, and what he calls a drive to master through anxiety, if this is a a drive to sort of master the ignorance before the event, you know, after the fact, this not treglikite, if you will, this opera coup, this after, this deferred action of retroactively mastering the, the ignorance of the horrors of war or something. No, Freud speaks quite similar things um, twice in his work, actually, in regard to the train crash. He, let's say, imagines that people have suffered, have, have been victims in a train crash. And then after, some of them start developing nightmares. And his idea is that in this nightmare, you know, people are sort of like relieving the, the anxiety mm-hmm. related to the train crash, but it is as if this anxiety tries to prepare them if a repetition of this event is happening, you know, in the future. So, which is what uh, Freud's idea is that anxiety can function like a buffer zone. Mm -hmm. It tries to prepare us for something, but it comes, you know, after the event, you know, Mm -hmm. so 
as if you know it would help us before the event to have the knowledge what is to happen what is to come which is of course impossible you know that's what uh, where anxiety you know becomes again something you know potentially quite positive or at least you know we have a fantasy that we might be able with the help of anxiety to be prepared for trauma which is to come i do like that and i think that it's i know i mean lacan later talks about what in seminar 10 about anxiety as as a kind of a signal from the real to the to the ego and so there's something similar there too about this preparedness you know this buffer Absolutely. And of course, anxiety, which I wrote a book about it yes. a few years ago, it's something also very important in love and in, in intersubjective relationships as such, because uh, desire um, and the question of, you know, how are we desired by others is an, an anxiety provoking question. And also, you know, the whole question about the subject, the identity, how was I, let's say, uh, conceived? Uh, was I desired or not by my right. parents? It's like an essential question for people to which there is no answer. And Colette Soler gives a wonderful kind of uh, explanation uh, that, you know, to those kind of anxiety provoking questions of who am I for the other? How does the other regard me? You know, it's very painful to understand that there is no way we can ever find any satisfying answer. Even let's say that if I ask my partner, do you love me? Who am I for you? And let's say he would say, I love you and uh, you are, you know, the best that happened to me or whatever. I would look in between the lines, you know, I would sort of try to figure out whether the tone of his voice, you know, Mm. is honest, or maybe he's just trying to escape, you know, this stupid question (laughs) wants to move on with something more interesting to discuss. So there is no answer that can satisfy us to those kind of questions in regards to, you know, who are we in the desire of the other? And of course, the other cannot put that into words also. I like this because you say this in your essay on the drive, quoting Solaire, right? The other can't provide the answer because the series of signifiers can never fully represent the subject, but can only represent him or her for another signifier. But there is also the lack in the other, right? For Lacan, it's supposed to understood as the interval, right? The subject himself can't give the answer because of being castrated or split. So you're right. There is no way to really find this out, which is why I think it, it constantly recurs. And, and it recurs through your book, too, as a trope, this what am I for the other, which is this sort of existential anxiety provoking question. Yet at the same time, it's as you said, it's it's positive in provoking that anxiety. I mean, like the way maybe Sartre talks about angst, you know, um, as sort of our we're condemned to be free, if you will. <laughs> Anyway, that was just an aside. Not not a question, just I'm glad you, you brought up that point because I, I did enjoy your, your essay on the drive and I highly recommend it for um for our listeners to to track that down if they're curious about the drive in Freud and, and Lacan. Thank you. Coop, I know you had some some stuff. I, I'll um, Yeah, I, I don't know that I necessarily have a formulated question per se, but maybe more of like a provocation to conversation would be I don't know. This morning I started to think and just reviewing my notes, how well this sort of idea of ignorance applies to something like film. And I know Taylor mentioned that a little, you know, a bit earlier in the podcast. But I think it is interesting going to the example from Levi Strauss 
and how the I guess there were there's a village, there's two different kinship groups, and yeah. each of them represented the layout of the of the village, let's say, of the village space differently. And so that's kind of the germ of the idea that triggered this. Okay, well, something similar, or maybe more so drawing the relationship between the power lies with who decides what's emphasized. And I think that example from Levi Strauss goes to that. But I think maybe the filmmaker would be the sort of, you know what I mean? It's kind of the, like the omniscient position, the eye of God in, in a sense that selects. And even just in the construction of film too, the importance of ignorance, because it's really just a series of of images. It's, it's not the, it's, it's an illusion, you know what I mean? It's just static images being shown at a particular speed. So we sort of are ignorant of that process, but we're also ignorant of just the way that the language of film, the way that cuts work, etc. It's not necessarily this thing that you would perhaps understand without being immersed within the, I guess, the milieu of cinematic language, which, you know, is a good metaphor. I don't know if you have any, if this draws out any thoughts relative to this example of the, of the village and representation and the different methods and how that how ignorance plays into that perhaps no i think that you're you're right that this uh story by claude levi strauss and i think it's important to remind our listeners that it is about he studying a village in south america where there are two native groups kind of sub tribes of one tribe living together but each of the group draws the village completely differently they live in the same village but one group draws as if the houses are like placed in a circular way and the other one draws the same this village as if they are kind of more in a square type mm -hmm. of way and uh, he says that even if we look at this village with the new technology let's say take an aerial photo of the village maybe we will see something completely different from the two tribes maybe the the village is like in a triangular way or, or whatever set and i think that claude Strauss nicely points out that people actually construct the structure of their reality or their you know the theory of how their reality looks like in a highly individual way and there is no universal sort of let's say picture and we cannot convince them even let's say with a kind of let's say picture from from afar that their story of how they right, see their right. realities is wrong and we see this more and more let's say we have such divided communities in the united states it is that the republicans and democrats are seeing their own country in a completely different way it is like these two tribes of uh, uh or let's say people who believe that the world is flat. Mm -hmm. They cannot be convinced with any aerial photos mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. the earth being crowned because right. they have already made their the theory in, in their heads in which they believe. And I think that it's, it's important to understand, you know, the power of, of these beliefs. And this is where, you know, kind of my study of ignorance also goes into that in today's times, whichever new technologies we have, we actually are opening ever new doors of how to interpret the knowledge right. that we have, how to close our eyes, let's say, in front of the knowledge, and also how to limit knowledge. And that's another point I want to make that, you know, we are often saying that we are living in the knowledge-based society, but actually we are living in ignorance-based societies because we are finding ways to limit 
scientific knowledge, for example, to, you know, only a small groups of people. And nowadays, let's say with big data, mm-hmm. whoever has access to the big data, and these are private corporations, you know, especially mm-hmm. Google, Facebook, Amazon, and, and similars, they have now an important asset, which, you know, the majority of the people around the world don't have access to. So we are living in society where, unfortunately, knowledge, you know, especially scientific knowledge and new knowledge that we are creating out of the new, um, let's say, studies of, of the big data, the secret algorithms, the, the way they work, the way they influence our behavior, political, consumer, and other, how they influence our emotions. I think all this is becoming now so obscured and so privatized and, you know, in some way so hard to study even in the domain of, of science that this is kind of, let's say, the new world of ignorance, which we still, I think, don't really know how, how to tackle. Fortunately, I, I feel even in the domain of science that we are really limiting access to scientific development, you know, with the way, you know, scientific publishing is functioning, right. you know, the difficulty with open access, um, the difficulty, mm-hmm. let's say, having the, the possibility to study data. And also, I would say, yeah, the compartmentalization of, of knowledge, which is sort of kind of really links linked to the economic power structures. The big corporations, which are, you know, in charge of all the data more and more. Right, and yeah. There's no way to get out of it, you know. Let's say yeah. the Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica scandal is almost forgotten. You know, it showed an enormous influence that uh, Facebook can have on the emotions, on political beliefs of, of people. And we didn't make any step, let's say, further after, after that uh, scandal. No, I like how you emphasize... Yeah. In the discussion in the book about this, something I find very interesting, I don't know, just maybe for its metaphorical value would be this idea that let's say, even if you as an individual requested your data, you wouldn't really be able to do anything with it outside. Like you you need the rest of the data set to really be able to utilize. So even, I don't know, it's just kind of showing how much of our sort of subjectivity or just how sort of controlled we are, I suppose. Exactly, but also how we close our eyes. So when I was writing this book before the pandemic, when when I was sort of um, finishing some of the chapters, I went to Ukraine, uh, to Kiev, where they translated one of my my book on choice. And I noticed how in Kiev, everywhere, internet is free. Like walk down the main streets and, and like you have the signal, you know, sort of like you can connect to internet wherever you want. And I gave a lecture and I asked my audience, you know, whether they are worried about the fact that this data is collected by someone. and. Mm-hmm. Who is collecting data from the fact that like everyone can be on internet, whatever. And, you know, my audience were completely ignorant, you know, like which data, (laughs) our data, you know, our data is like nothing for anyone, you know, sort of like, we just want to have free internet and that's fine that we have. So it's kind of a small thing, but like, Today, we are really living with this forced choice that either we kind of, let's say, allow our, our data 
and not know what is happening with it, uh, or if we are not having access to all kinds of apps or, you know, mm-hmm. internet as such. I mean, that's a good point. You could Just the fact that our GPS locations with our phones on can be accessed, even just something as simple as that could have wide ranging implications for, you know, not just obviously corporations, but, you know, state executive. Uh, Social movements. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you don't want to take your phone to a protest, let's say even. Right. For example. Exactly. So that's what I was trying to do in this book, you know, to look at the issues of ignorance, knowledge, subjectivity in today's time, you know, Mm -hmm. so to move our psychoanalytic thinking a little bit further. And that's what I think we need to do to bring together people who are working in psychoanalysis, social sciences, philosophy, and also who understand new technology to kind of understand subjectivity today. That's kind Mm -hmm. of, let's say, my my idea. And there are more and more people actually who are seeing this uh, need. Yeah. And you know, there is an institute established now in New York, Pulsion, which mm. I'm also uh, linked to, which is planning to you know, train future psychoanalysts, but mm-hmm. in, in instead of a broader way to look at the social changes and how the social changes are affecting individuals. That's kind of my question, which I always pose my friends. I'm not a practicing psychoanalyst myself, but whenever I speak with my friends who are, I ask them, what are the new symptoms today? What are the (laughs) types of suffering that you observe today? Is there any change? Interesting. You know, today and like maybe 20, 30 years ago when you started practicing. And there are some changes and not not so many at the same time. Suffering. Interesting quite similar. Nonetheless, there are, you know, definitely new uh, elements today. You know, I I would say that uh, this element of sort of a kind of apathy or burnout or, you know, a disaffected or especially among youngsters having problem to put into words your emotions, your affects, you know, they observe on the rise. And with those who are working with children, of course, they do observe change that uh, is happening with children because they are hooked so early to new technologies who are very used of holding mobile phones in their hands and they are maybe one or two years old and, you know, they are not accustomed to eat without some entertainment. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yes. They want oh. to, they swipe with their hand, you know, in the air when they <laughs> want to get rid of some human, human <laughs> as they swipe with their hand on oh their mobile gosh. phone, you know. That's hilarious. What psychiatrists um, who are working and psychologists who are working with small children are observing is also that when they get very accustomed to this, you know, lively images, films um, on, on the mobile phones and, uh, and uh, computers early on, nothing in actual life can compare to that, you know, nothing is exciting. Right. The the dynamic online. Even the real experience, you know, just thinking about people that share photographs on Instagram because of the filters and so forth. And I mean, it's not limited to Instagram, obviously, but the image is more real than the real to get too much into Baudrillard. But I wanted to bring it back to this idea of the apathy or burnout that you brought up, because this is something that I feel a lot. And it's just that, for example, I may see a dead squirrel or something on the sidewalk. Yeah. That then I start to, 
I empathize with the suffering of the animal, but then I start to think, oh, well, there's this, how many times is this happening? And it becomes this overwhelming thing. And I mean, that's just like a squirrel. I mean, the Ukraine war is another thing. Uh, You know, I mean, obviously there's innocent people that are dying on both sides of the conflict. What can I do to actually impact that and, and help those people? There's very little that I can do. And that's only one example. Obviously that's a prime example because it's in the media, but there's, you know, a million untold stories. And so when I start to project that, it almost makes me sick that there's so much suffering that I'm powerless to do anything about. So the the fantasy retreat is a way of it is it's totally what the book is about is like I want to remain ignorant of this suffering so that I can just live my life so you can without function. just so that I can even function without just being crushed every day by the absolute suffering of of all life. I think that's kind of the next step of where, you know, neoliberalism is kind of, you know, succeeding. Um, so in, in my previous book, Tyranny of Choice, I was, you know, looking at that this idea that everything in your life is a matter of choice is on the one hand, you know, a total fantasy, but on yes. the other hand, it's, it's kind of a productive fantasy, which right. allows the neoliberal regime to continue to go on because you are constantly dealing with, did I do the right thing? You know, right. should I longer you're full of anxiety full of feeling of guilt and you're constantly blaming yourself you know and that's ideal subject for neoliberalism you know Mm -hmm. i think it's your individual choices which are which matter and not social choices which means that you are not politically active you know to kind of organize yourself as a group and i think that apathy is like the next step in this pacification and also this retreat which is happening more and more because there is really so much so much excitation so much horror so many you know terrible things happening so this retreat to the private life i observe more and more you know people not watching the news you know closing the television down when there is another Mm -hmm. conflict they are reading about of course, we knew already before Stanley Cohen, he was a professor at LSE, wrote a book about denial where he 20 years ago analyzed compassion fatigue in mm. regard to wars, you know, saying that, you know, people sooner or later get just completely exhausted from and stop watching or stop kind of noticing or all the suffering that they observe. And we are observing this with Ukrainian war and uh, Zelensky, even, you know, himself a few months ago mentioned, uh, please, you know, in regard to our war, don't get into compassion fatigue, you know, like, please listen what's happening and, and so on. And I think he was right. And he's doing, you know, I think a good job in <laughs> reminding constantly, you know, the world what, what is happening, because otherwise, you know, people will sooner or later just perceive it as another conflict that is going to have go on forever. For all the years that s- the Syrian war was going all on. Right. I mean, it, still, it's <laughs> still going on, still, basically. And now the earthquake and, you know, right. another catastrophe. Exactly, yeah. So yes, we need to understand that people are retreating into their private world uh, or or the fantasy world, which brings a certain kind of a satisfaction, you know, enjoyment. People find a kind of a compensation for all the, you know, pain that they 
are suffering from or others are suffering and they are observing in the in the actual world and we also of course need to understand that the logic of functioning of this, the neoliberal capitalism with the cruelty against the workers has contributed vastly to the this feeling of burnout and of course the feeling that you are not recognized mm-hmm. that you are dispensable exactly yeah i'm linking in the book also to the way you know we are dealing with knowledge so the feeling that you are ignored in some way affects you in how you are dealing with sort of knowledge and how you are also communicating i would say with others sometimes you know finding enjoyment in spreading fake news in which even you yourself don't believe i would say this is very you just beautifully i think executed the logic for why something like superhero films are so prevalent or popular in our current moment because it allows a couple of things it allows you to feel like to take on that individual power and strength and ability the fantasy of yourself as you would like to be recognized as a superhuman or whatever the case may be but it's also on the other side of it there's like a world that makes sense as well like the the stories wrap themselves up nicely obviously the good guys you know triumph in the end so i don't know there's some tie between the sort of like individualistic aspect of neoliberalism and this individual fantasy and as well as this like sort of yeah the sort of fantasy of of the social relation maybe even yeah i'm just watching the the last of us <laughs> oh yeah HBO series, so I see. You know, I'm only on uh, the, the the second episode, but I already see it's again the individual who appears right. to be saving the world. Exactly, exactly. It, it is a kind of messiah story. Uh, it's I've played the. There's two games now. I've, I've played <laughs> oh, both of them, and um, yeah, I mean, you could say that there's a, you know, there is this one central character who supposedly is going to save the world, but in another sense, I mean, the way the story plays out, there is especially in the second game, there's a lot more social conflict and background to what's going on. So I'm hoping that the series does the stories in the game justice. And, um, and I, you know, I, I think, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, this is why I love Dune because Dune is specifically a critique of this way of thinking, this sort of individual savior mythology that, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I, I don't know something about that almost traps us in this double bind of action right because it's like i can't do anything by myself but i don't have a group to participate in so i'm caught within this double bind but also yeah i guess just the the notion that the whole messiah that idea itself i think is falling into the sort of fellow logocentric logic of yeah just that logic you know what i mean ultimately if you're looking for the the exception the exceptional one like a Superman, for example, right? Like that's why the fantasy is so successful, I think. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see where it's leading because I did not play the game, but <laughs> it it appears that it's one of the rare films, you know, made after the game that is quite uh, successful. I know that we've had you for about an hour and a half. I do want, I know we've talked a little bit about what you're working on now, Apathy, and linking this to your other works. I just want to give you perhaps a chance to tell us a little bit more about your current research and the overall arc. I'm hoping or thinking that you'll continue the kind of thread because I see a thread in your books that logically sort of tie together. And you know, one of the things I'm thinking is 
I'm trying to juxtapose apathy versus something like equanimity or, you know, in, in the Epicurean sense or something like this, so that there can be positive aspects, kind of like with ignorance, right? I mean, perhaps there is a there's an alternative, but I'll let you have the the last word, just sort of telling us what we can see from you in the in the future. Thank you. Um, that is sort of like a line I'm following. Because whichever theme I start researching, I want to kind of show many dimensions uh, of it and not go kind of for or against, mm-hmm. which is what, you know, I did like, uh, again, my book, Love and Hate, <laughs> which was mm-hmm. exactly, you know, like showing how they quite often go hand in hand and in anxiety also to show the kind of also positive aspects of anxiety with choice also to to not to give up on choice but to see how wrongly we perceive choices nowadays especially mm-hmm. when we have this fantasy of a rational choice when you can be satisfied with whatever you are choosing and you know, with ignorance again to show the positive elements of ignorance the fact that sometimes it is very beneficial for the subjects to be ignorant to close his or her eyes and to allow also someone else who is ignorant, let's say a person who is facing, uh, you know, terrible illness and does not want to know about it, to allow the person <laughs> to, you know, know how much he or she can kind of cope with, to have a respect uh, for this kind of, let's say, ignorance related to trauma, some traumatic, uh, let's say, past or let's say something that awaits us. And now with apathy, I'm trying to also show the mechanisms, the social mechanisms which are contributing to people feeling apathy. Also, you know, to show different, how in different cultural settings this happens. For example, I'm looking at the Soviet and post-Soviet uh, part of the world and you know how it differs if it does differ you know the apathy in these countries which had you know different past than in the countries which have been you know in the capitalist system for a long long time uh, how capitalism capitalizes on apathy and you know a lot of regimes nowadays I think really quite kind of profit from having more and more people apathetic. And of course, I also to, to see with apathy also some, let's say, positive part of it. And in some way, also juxtapose it to the kind of a search for excitation, which can be sometimes also, you know, incredibly damaging for, for the person. And um, of course, it's also promoted ideologically, but differently than apathy. And I will look at the new technology, how the new technology is contributing to people being disaffected, uh, but also sometimes, you know, really, you know, going into an overdrive of excitation, mm-hmm. how to live with two extremes. That's great. And it does, again, follow from the thread that I'm, I'm seeing in your work. And so I'm, I'm glad to, to see you continuing that and, and continuing that narrative and that trajectory. and. Uh, I just want to say once again, I thank you so much for spending time with thank us you. today. I enjoyed it immensely getting to talk uh, shop with you about Lacan, Freud, psychoanalysis, and uh, the themes of your of your latest work. And I do look forward to to your next work. Thank you, thank you to both of you, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, more of your podcasts. Excellent. We'll let you know. It should be yeah, it should be next uh, weekend, Saturday next weekend, or Sunday, hopefully. Next Next weekend, uh, the, the, so, send me the link. I Absolutely. will. I'll definitely Thank do you. that. 
Thank you. If you need testimonials, I am totally your perfect subject for many of these conditions I have, you know. For apathy. I've well, <laughs> I've also tweeted probably, you know, 200 times in a day before. I don't know that for a fact, but I would say the probability is highly likely that I've done yeah. that before, so um, yeah. I've got all kinds of neuroses, fun neuroses that you could <laughs> mine for your uh, for your work. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a great Pleasure day. having you. Thanks so you much, Renata. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Renata Seletzel for joining us on this week's edition of The Machinic Unconscious Happier with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.